Okay, somebody joked as they were coming in that they were here to learn about Revelation. And I said, I'm also here to learn about Revelation. And they said, well, we're here with questions and you've got the answers. And literally, the very first thing on my notes tonight says, I have a lot of questions about Revelation 10 and 11. So briefly and very quickly, these are the questions, just a few, that we need to answer tonight. Who's the angel? What's the little scroll? What is seven thunders? What did the seven thunders say that was sealed up? Why was it sealed up? Why does it matter that the scroll was sweet and sour? What's the court outside the temple? Why wasn't John measuring it? How long is 42 months? 1,260 days, three and a half years. Who are the two witnesses? Why are they called olive trees and lampstands? What is the fire that comes out of their mouth? What are the plagues that they control? Who's the beast from the pit? Why is there a reference to Sodom and Egypt? Where are the two witnesses when they're resurrected? What does it mean to come up here? Uh, why does the earthquake kill 7,000 people? Did the people repent or did they worship God? Is this the third woe? And does the end of chapter 11 describe the return of Jesus? And why in the world does the Ark of the Covenant show up at the end of this section? If we can answer all that, then you make sense of Revelation 10 to 11. Really, really simple. And honestly... I put that in my notes because when I sat down to prep, I, I got a few verses in and I'm, I know these chapters and I've thought about them and I wrestle with them and I just start writing down, I'm not sure about this, I'm not sure about this, I'm not sure about this, I'm not sure about this. And just, there's a lot of questions uh, that we need to try to tackle tonight. And that's going to be our, our general approach is to read some verses and then just ask some questions and I'm going to throw some answers your way. Uh, for you to think about and give consideration to. Now, here's the temptation. The temptation in Revelation 10 and 11 is to jump right in and start trying to decode things and to come up with like a master chart of this is this and this is this and this is this. And we're going to do some of that tonight. But before we do that, you've got to understand the context of Revelation 10 and 11 where they fit in the book, and what's happening here. Because a lot of the weirdness, and there is an incredible amount of weirdness about these two chapters, a lot of the weirdness comes from people who just flip open here, and they read something without reading what's come before it or understanding how the book is pieced together, and they just start pulling things out of thin air that they've read in a Tim LaHaye book or they've seen on Christian television or they watched on a YouTube video or whatever. And so we're going to try not to, to have that, uh, that approach. This is apocalyptic literature. And this week and next month, I've just remind you, with apocalyptic literature in the imagery, you rarely take it literally. You always have to take it seriously. This is not just a game where you can pull whatever you want and slap it on for whatever meaning. But rarely do you take it literally, and I'm going to give you some examples of that tonight, where if you really want to take it literally, you're going to end up in a really weird place. Uh, one last thought on these two chapters. Uh, one of our ladies who taught through Revelation as the ladies went through a, a Nancy Guthrie book they got online, they asked me what commentary is the best one to buy, and you read a few books and you figure out one of the best ones to buy is by G.K. Beale. So they bought a commentary, not this one, but they bought the shorter commentary by G.K. Beale, and they got it in the mail, and they didn't know how big it was. The shorter commentary is 750 pages. 
And they sent me a text and said, why did you tell me to get a commentary that's 750 pages? And I said, because that one is 1,300 pages. And on these chapters alone, this section of Revelation, there's over 100 pages of commentary and explanation in theories and engaging with ideas. It's a book within a book just on these two chapters. So there is a ton, a ton to wade through here. So let's just get our bearings with some context. One of the things we've said in our study of Revelation is that Revelation is built on, as a book, it's built on seven sevens. Uh, seven is an important number in Revelation, and there's seven sevens in the book that give structure to the book. So we'll throw the outline up, and I think you have this on your notes. There's a prologue, and there's an epilogue. So there's an introduction at the beginning, and there's sort of a wrap-it-up section at the end. And right here in 4.1 to 5.14, there's a centering, foundational, key vision where you meet the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And we're going to talk about the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb tonight as it appears slightly differently in Revelation 10 and 11. But this is sort of the foundational vision for the whole book. And then the rest of it is seven sevens. And we've talked about the seven letters and we've talked about the seven seals, and we're in the middle of the seven trumpets. And so this is not on your notes, I don't think, but I want to just break this seven trumpets down so that you see the trumpets have two parts. Uh, trumpet 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 is chapter 8 and chapter 9. And that's what we talked about last month. We talked about the first six trumpets. So we still got one more trumpet hanging out there, and what you find in 10 and 11 is an interlude and then one more trumpet. So everything that we talk about tonight with scrolls and witnesses and fire coming out of mouths and resurrections and beasts and all this crazy stuff, it all fits under this, uh, this heading of we're talking about the seven trumpets. And we're in an interlude trying to get to that seventh uh, trumpet. The the First six trumpets, one, two, three, four, five, six, they're very dark and they're very uh, kind of frightening to some degree. We ended up last week talking about these demonic hordes that were turned loose on the world and they're tormenting people and they're leading people astray with false teaching and they're just wreaking havoc. When you come to chapter 10 and 11 in this interlude in the seventh trumpet, it's not quite so dark and depressing, and there's a little bit of hope given to God's people in the midst of what they're experiencing with these trumpets. Uh, so let's talk about the literary context. The immediate literary context is critical for understanding Revelation 10 to 11, and I just want to give you three ideas here. The first is this. The seals and the trumpets have a parallel literary structure. And the structure is 4 plus 2 plus an interlude plus 1 equals 7. So I know that's kind of confusing. So let me just put it up on the screen so that you can see it. This is not in your notes. In the seals, you get the first four, and they're a group. Those first four seals go together, and you understand them together. And then you have two seals that are a little bit different. You get to number 5 and number 6, and you say, oh, those are different than the first four. And then you have this long interlude in chapter 7, where there's sort of a pause on the seals, and John is telling you different things, and then you come back and you get the last seal in chapter 8. The trumpets 
have the same pattern. You get the first four, and they all go together. They fit together. You understand them together. And then you get these two, and this is where we talk about these demonic cords turned loose on people, and we talked about they're not Apache helicopters, and they're not tanks, and they're not all that sort of crazy stuff that people say they are. They're demonic forces of evil. John's pulling back the curtain so you can see what's really happening, and they wreak havoc on those who dwell on the earth. Now we're talking about this interlude, and then we're going to come back and pick up the seventh trumpet uh, before we wrap up tonight. So secondly, Revelation 10 and 11 is the interlude between the first two woes and the third woe. So this is just a callback to last week. When you got to uh, trumpet 5, 6, and 7, you're dealing with woe 1, 2, and 3. And so you can go back and look in Revelation 8. There's this warning about three woes that are coming. And you get trumpet number five, and it says this is the first woe. And then you get trumpet number six, and it says this is the second woe. And we're waiting for the third woe. And it's hanging out, uh, I think, here I put question marks, because these two tell you this is three woes are coming, 813, 9-12, that's the first woe. 11.14, that's the second woe. It never tells you that the third woe has come, but I think it's what we read about here at the end of chapter 11. So we'll get there eventually. Uh, point number three on context. The seals and the trumpets are connected by the idea of people being sealed. And this gets a little bit confusing. Um, there are seven seals and... The interlude of the seals involves people being sealed. So there's all this sealing and seals, and you're trying to make sense of this. And when you meet these sealed people, these people that have the seal of God in chapter 7, we talked about these are believers. These are Christians who are sealed with the Holy Spirit, a parallel idea to what Paul talks about in his letter to the church in Ephesus. So these people are sealed. In chapter 9... When these demonic forces are being turned loose on the world, this is the trumpets, we're told in the vision that those who are sealed are protected from the torment of these demonic forces. The people of God are protected from this false teaching and the torment of these demonic beings. Uh, as we get into our, our verses tonight, chapter 10 and chapter 11, one of the things we understand is that the sealing of God does provide protection for the people of God from the forces of evil, but it does not exempt them from all suffering. And a lot of times when you read people talking about revelation and the idea of sealing, you can read very popular novels that will essentially say, look, if you got this seal, you're good. You don't have to worry about much of anything. It's all going to be okay. And that's not what Revelation is saying that this seal does. There is a spiritual protection for the people of God. But as we'll see, uh, especially in chapter 11, they're still facing persecution. So a couple of quotes, and then we'll dive in and read chapter 10. Uh, this is G.K. Beale, um, the grandfather commentary. He says, just as there was an interpretive parenthesis between uh, the sixth and the seventh seals, back in chapter 7, so there's a similar parenthesis between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. Uh, this is a literary device of interlocking. It introduces the second part of the book and it links it to the first part. 
So if you're a golfer, you can think about this like your grip on a golf club, right? If you read Harvey Pinnock, you know you're supposed to take your pinkies and lock them right here, okay? So that your two hands function as one unit and you're together like that. That's what Revelation is doing with the seals and the trumpets. The way this seventh seal shows up and the trumpets are introduced, we're interlocking them so that you understand John is describing the same thing, but he's giving you a different camera angle on it. They're connected in what they're describing, but they are different in giving you a different view of things. So like the princess in chapter 7, 10 and 11, do not narrate future events following those of the preceding chapter, but they cover the same period of time. If it seems weird to you, that Revelation would have these interludes that do not move chronologically, but that describe something sort of in a recapitulatory, recapitulatory manner. I would just remind you of the book of Genesis as an example of how the Hebrews did this. Genesis 1 tells the story of creation, right? All the days of creation described in Genesis 1. What do you read about in Genesis 2? Creation creation of man and woman specifically it's not saying that that happened on day eight it's not moving chronologically it's going back and saying now let me give you a zoomed in view an in close camera angle of something that you just read about in chapter one and what i'm telling you with this interlude we're in the interlude of the trumpets it's doing the same thing it's not moving chronologically past the trumpets but it's circling back just like the interlude in chapter 7 to give you a different view of what was just described. So that's Beale. Uh, look at the quotes from Derek Thomas. Um, there's two quotes from Derek Thomas, I think, that I gave you. He says, what's recorded in chapter 10 and 11 is not meant to be regarded as chronological. Uh, they cover the same period of time as the events described by the first six trumpets. This is the entire period from the ascension of Christ to his final return, which means that all this stuff in chapter 10 and 11 is stuff that's going on now. And then he says the basic structure of Revelation can be described as recapitulatory. Uh, it's constantly covering the same general ground, returning to serve it all, survey it all over again, adding further insight with each new visit. So the seals are history from one vantage point, and the trumpets are history, the same history, from a different vantage point. Uh, now, let me just give you the, the Guthrie quotes here. This is the book that our ladies have used as they've studied Revelation. What is the purpose of all this? I think she's helpful here. The purpose of the six trumpet judgments has been to warn a pagan, idolatrous world that judgment is coming. Every possible chance for repentance has been given, but it doesn't work, which raises questions. How will anybody be brought to repentance in a world filled with so much disappointment destruction, and death. Is it even possible? What are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, you and me, to do during this in-between time in a world that seems to have no hope? We find the answer in chapter 10 and 11. She says, how is it that amongst all the hard-hearted people of the world that God will create a people for himself for many peoples, nations, languages, and kings? Remember, we saw that in chapter 7. Evidently, the warnings of the trumpets are not enough. Fear of judgment is not enough. And if you were here last month, when we talked about the first six trumpets, you come to the end and it says no one repented. God poured out all this horror on those who dwell on the earth and no one repents. They're just miserable and they're stuck in their misery and all those judgments and all that destruction doesn't move anyone to repentance. So how is anyone going to move? Well, in his wise plan, 
God has ordained to use the gospel witness of ordinary people who have found satisfaction and security in Christ. So that's me and that's you. And we're going to start by reading Revelation 10. It's a short chapter, 11 verses, so we'll read the whole thing and then we'll ask some questions. Revelation 10.1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it and earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, remember we're waiting on trumpet seven, we've seen six, we're waiting on number seven, in the day of this seventh trumpet, Uh, by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go, take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it in my stomach, uh, when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So we'll stop and try to uh, tackle chapter 10. All right. All those questions we started with at the beginning, we're just going to start trying to check some of those off. Question number one, who is the mighty angel that you meet here in chapter 10? There's two main theories. One says it's Jesus, and the other says, uh, shockingly, it's an angel. So, either Jesus or an angel. Uh, G.K. Beale says that it's an angel. And he looks at this description you read like from verse 1 in chapter 10 uh, down to verse 5 and 6. And he basically says a lot of these descriptors are applied to Jesus elsewhere. Uh, Points out things like his voice is like a roaring lion. Uh, Points out things like he's holding this scroll and uh, he's standing in power and he's very big and he's majestic and the thunders are sounding all these things he says these are things used uh, to describe Jesus elsewhere in the book Uh, I tend to think that this is an angel not Jesus but I was amazed this week at how many commentators think it is Jesus and so this is one of those places in the book of Revelation where sometimes you you and me have to have a little bit of humility And when a whole lot of really smart people say something, you ought to think about it and not just dismiss it out of hand. People who share your convictions about the Bible and share your convictions about lots of other things, you ought to give some consideration to it. But I do think it's an angel, uh, not Jesus. 
I think the parallel, we can't trace all these parallels out, but I think the parallel is Daniel 8 in the description of Gabriel. And I'm not saying to you this is Gabriel. I just think those are the parallels that John is drawing on here. And notice that he says in verse 1, I saw another mighty angel. That word another is a comparison word. And what he's saying is, I've seen one angel, and now I see another angel. I've seen one messenger, and now I'm seeing another messenger. Um, So I think that what he's describing is an angel here, and it's not Jesus. If you go to Revelation 18, he will say again, I saw another angel, another mighty angel. So you can split the difference. You can take your pick. Uh, It's Jesus, some say, or it's an angel, others say. I'm inclined to think it's an angel. Next question, what's the little scroll in verse 2? What is on this scroll? There's basically three views. Uh, View number one is that it is the same scroll mentioned back in Revelation 5. So if you were here when we looked at Revelation 4 and 5, John has this vision of the one who sits on the throne, and there's this sealed scroll, and the angel asks the question, who is worthy to open the scroll and no one is found worthy, and there's weeping, and there's all this consternation that nobody can open the scroll, no one can break the seals. And finally, it's Jesus, the Lamb, who takes the scroll and is worthy to open the seals, and everybody's very glad about that. So some people think that it's a, it's a reference to the same scroll. I will point out, I think this is basically what John's describing. But he does here call it a little scroll. And in chapter 5, he said it's a scroll. So he does give this qualifier that it's a little scroll, and I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of theories about that. I'm just being honest with you. Theory number two, some people are not convinced that it's the same scroll, and they say it's the remaining contents of Revelation. They basically say it's the rest of the book that John's about to write down is on this scroll, and he's going to get it, and he's going to open it up, and he's going to see it, and he's going to have these visions, and he's going to write down the rest of what we would call Revelation. Um, one of the most influential New Testament scholars, a guy named Richard Bauckham, takes this view, that the little scroll is the rest of Revelation. Thirdly, some argue that the little scroll is a record of the mystery of the gospel. And this is, I'm kind of using this as a catch-all, but there's a lot of guys that basically say the contents of this scroll has something to do with the good news about salvation in Jesus Christ, and they try to draw connections within this section, and they try to make connections elsewhere. I'm inclined to think that it's the same scroll back in Revelation 5 uh, for a number of reasons, and we're not going to trace all those out just for the sake of time. Um, honestly, it doesn't make a big difference. Can I just be straight with you? A lot of these people chase all sorts of rabbits on this scroll, and at the end of that trail, you come back and you can center on the main point of the passage. It does not make a huge difference what's on this scroll as you see how the story plays out. Uh, Question number three, what in the world are the seven thunders? And why was John told to seal it up? So I think that the seven thunders is likely a reference to the voice of the Lord that thunders seven times in Psalm 29. So we're not going to read this. We cannot chase all these Old Testament allusions, but I'm giving you Psalm 29, and you can go back and read, and it says the voice of the Lord thunders, and seven times it thunders. And I think this is the parallel. I think this is what John's alluding to. 
Because this is what John does throughout the book of Revelation. He never quotes the Old Testament directly. He constantly alludes to it. And he says things that if you've read the Old Testament, you've studied the Old Testament, there's a million places where you say, oh, that reminds me of this. And that's how John builds off of the Old Testament. He uses the book of Daniel. He uses the book of Ezekiel, as we'll see here in just a minute. He refers to the book of Genesis. He refers to the Psalms. And I think that's what this voice of the Lord was. Now, here's a very insightful observation for you. It is not entirely clear why John was told to seal up what the seven thunders said. Translation, I have no idea, and I don't think anybody else does either. So I'm reading all these commentaries. He hears the seven thunders sound, and he's about to write it down, and the voice says, no, 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 don't write that down. That's not for public consumption. Seal that up. And some people say, you remember in Deuteronomy, Moses told the people, God has told you certain things, but the secret things belong to God, and they're not for you to know. So some people say it's the same kind of deal. You remember when Paul went to had this vision of heaven? And he says in that vision to the Corinthians, I, I saw things, I experienced things that I, I can't talk about. Some people say that's the same kind of stuff. It's just something that God didn't want him to, to mention. But it's really interesting that he mentions it and then says, yeah, I can't tell you about that part. And Paul does the same thing to the Corinthians. I had this vision. I know a man caught up to the third heaven, the very presence of God, saw things I can't even tell you about. What things? I can't tell you about them. The seven thunders, boom out. It was amazing. You should have been there. What'd they say? I'm not allowed to tell you. Uh, some people think that this is another sequence of seven. Like in the book of Revelation, there's all these sevens, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven letters, all these sevens. And some people say this is a seventh seven, but we only needed seven. We didn't need eight sevens. So this one didn't make the cut, and it got, it got axed out of the book. Um, why, why are we talking about all this confusion? Here's the reason, Tom Schreiner. The message of the seven thunders reminds us that Revelation does not provide a complete map of things to come. Prophecy charts are popular in evangelicalism, and many have been very specific. But while God has revealed the broad outlines of the future, many things are hidden and concealed from us. We must not go beyond what is written and make assertions about what God has not revealed to us. If God hasn't revealed it, we don't need to speculate about it. And people do that with the book of Revelation all day long. And I'm belaboring this point just as a general principle for your study of the book. That if there's something in the book that doesn't seem particularly clear, and you read all these different scholars, and they're completely all over the place, and there's absolutely no consensus about any of it, then maybe you just step back and say, this doesn't seem to be one of the plain, main, central things of the book that are essential to understand. And maybe God didn't intend for it to be perfectly clear. And maybe this falls into the category of Jesus saying, when is the Son of Man coming back? I don't know. The Father knows. I don't know, and you don't need to know. And maybe this falls into that category. I think there's a lot of that in Revelation. Next question, what's the meaning of no more delay in this mystery that's going to be revealed? Uh, when the seventh and the final trumpet is blown, the end will come. 
I think that's what John is describing in verse 6 and 7 when he talks about this final trumpet and there will be no more delay. Um, that's it. Literally, there's no more time. Like, time's up would be the, the idiomatic way of describing this. The clock's on zero. That's it. Uh, we've come all the way to the end when this last trumpet blows. If you've ever been in a, a church service where you sang the hymn, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder, we sing that sometimes on Wednesday nights. There's a line in the hymn that says, When the trumpet of the Lord will sound and time will be no more. And I think that's what John's describing here. When that seventh trumpet blows, that's it. That's the end. And you're out of time. And when you read that here, and you see this idea expressed different ways in Revelation, it ought to create a sense of urgency in you when you're thinking about your relationship with Jesus Christ and spiritual things. Uh, I think that we're going to get to this final trumpet tonight in the end when we get to the end of chapter 11. Uh, what about the mystery? In the New Testament, the word mystery always refers to an aspect of the gospel that was previously not clear, but now it's been made clear. So it's, it's a gospel idea when the New Testament talks about a mystery. And the mystery is not like a murder mystery. It's not like a whodunit mystery. It's not like a puzzle that no one can figure out. It's something relating to the gospel that wasn't really clear in the Old Covenant, but that has become more clear in the New Covenant. So I'll give you an example of a, a New Testament mystery. Paul describes it as a mystery that the Gentiles have been brought into the church. He's basically saying, look, in the Old Covenant, we didn't exactly see that coming. But now it's been fully and more clearly revealed, and the Gentiles have been brought into the church, and we understand that better. He talks about marriage and the mystery of the gospel being related. That there's something in marriage that helps reveal the truth of the gospel. So when John's talking about a mystery here, it's a gospel type ter uh, term. And if you look at verse 7, he says, In the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And that word announced is the Greek word euangelizo, euangelizo, which basically means to preach good news. So it's, it's not just an announcement, but it's a good news announcement. It's a gospel announcement. And this euangelizo is essentially the verb for preaching good news, proclaiming good news. The euangelion is the gospel message. So when he says that this is going to be announced and he's talking about a mystery, he's driving us uh, towards the gospel message of salvation in Jesus. Now, one last question. Why was John told to take the scroll and eat the scroll in Revelation 10, 8 to 11? Uh, without question, the action is a replay of what happened to Ezekiel. And I'm going to talk about Ezekiel shortly, but I just want to tell you something that's been running through my head too. In the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve are placed in a garden. And the story says they saw it and they took it and they ate it. Uh, there's very similar language used to describe Achan in the book of Judges. He saw something that was not his. He took it. He coveted it. It was to be desired. Same word from Genesis. And he took it. Now, he didn't eat the gold and the cloak that he took from Jericho, but he took it. 
And it's the same words described here when it's take the scroll and eat this scroll. I think there is something that's supposed to evoke an image of Genesis where John is not grasping for something that's not his to take, but God in God's time and God's plan is giving him this knowledge and this information. And he's told, take the scroll and eat it. He doesn't take it on his own initiative, but he's told to take it and he's told to eat it. If you look at Ezekiel 3, uh, Ezekiel is told to take a scroll and to eat it. Take it and eat it. And God tells Ezekiel, it's going to be sweet when you eat it. And then if you keep reading in chapter 3, he gets sick. There's a sweetness to it and a sourness to it. And it's the exact same thing. Is John quoting Ezekiel? No. No quotation. But it's an allusion to the same thing that happened to Ezekiel. Now in Ezekiel's situation, what God is picturing is that Ezekiel is going to eat this scroll that contains God's words. And he's going to preach to people. He's going to say, thus says the Lord. That's the same idea for John. You're going to eat this scroll, and we can argue about what's on it. But he's going to eat this scroll, and then his job, as you read 10 and especially 11, is to proclaim and to preach, to announce good news to people, and not just good news, but also judgment. So the sweetness of the scroll and the bitterness of the scroll remind us that when God acts in history, he acts for the salvation of his people and the judgment of his enemies. That was part of Ezekiel's ministry as a prophet, was to proclaim that salvation would come, but he also proclaimed that judgment would come for God's enemies. This scroll that he ate was sweet, and then it made him upset. It was disturbing. It was distressing, and that's the same thing that John experiences. And so here's a quote from Ladd to put a bow on Revelation 10. This is an important truth for all who proclaim the word of God. The full counsel of God contains a word of judgment as well as mercy. And the messenger of the gospel must be faithful to both aspects of his message. But the man who knows the love of God and the compassion of Christ can never take delight in preaching the wrath of God or find satisfaction of spirit in proclaiming divine judgments. He must also always do this, excuse me, with a broken heart, a bitter spirit, following the example of his Lord, who wept over those upon whom God's judgment was to fall. And I would just tell you, as somebody who teaches and preaches regularly, this is a real tension when you stand up in front of people, whether you're doing it on a Sunday morning from the platform, or you're doing it in a Sunday school class, or you're talking to your uh, kids at home, to be faithful to this gospel message that Revelation 1, it's a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. It cuts to life and it cuts to death. It's sweet in his mouth and then it's sour in his stomach. There's good news to be extended to sinners and there's a warning to be extended to sinners. And those who preach and teach the gospel, you can't, you can't not warn people about the judgment to come. You have to do that. But you shouldn't take joy in it. You shouldn't take delight in it. You shouldn't revel in that. But you can't not do it. And it's a great tension. And if you preach or teach for very long in any context, you'll find yourself thinking, am I being soft? Am I not talking about judgment and wrath and God's anger and the consequence of hell enough? And then you'll find your time, yourself thinking at times, am I just beating people over the head with hell and judgment and warnings? and it's a, it's a tension, 
And John's wrestling with that tension here in Revelation chapter 10.